Bibles tonight to Psalms 133. You know, over the years I've been uh, so amazed by the names of churches that I've seen and uh, traveling over the country I've seen some really odd sounding names. It's like, wow, how did they come up with that? And uh, one of them I think I've noticed probably more than anything else is Corinth, Corinth Baptist Church. I, I have no idea how many, uh, how many of those there are, but there, there, there's a lot. And I've always wondered why in the world you would pick the name Corinth for, for a church as troubled as they were. Uh, that kind of amazes me. But there's some other strange names also, and I'll not try to make a list of them, but uh, how about Battlefield Baptist Church? Do you know there are four Battlefield Baptist Churches in America? I've been to one of them, the one in Russell Springs, Kentucky. And uh, those are the only four that I know about, the one there and three others in different places. Uh, naturally, there's a reason why they've chosen uh, their name. It's because of the geographical location. It's near a Civil War battlefield, and so that is quite appropriate. It, you know, uh, that shouldn't be a matter of concern uh, to us, but, uh, uh, but, but I'm afraid sometimes it would be an apt name for some churches that are known for the conflict that they have. And believe me, there are a lot of churches that have a reputation for fussing and fighting uh, in the church. Uh, it's, it's hard, if not impossible, for a church to ever live down a bad reputation. Uh, I, I can remember going to a particular church's pastor, and all they wanted to talk about for years and years and years was what had happened long before I'd ever ever even arrived there. Something uh, had happened. A preacher had done something, and uh, and and people twenty years later still talking about it. And uh, so it's a serious business. I, I preached in one church. Uh, in fact, I preached there on several occasions that had bloodstains on the floor. I, I always wondered why they didn't get a sander and sand them out, but uh, they left them there, and, of course, that blood literally stained the floor. They'd been there uh, for, uh, I, I guess, for a few years anyway. It was the result of a knife fight in a business meeting. Now, <laughs> you know, most churches don't ever reach that point of physical violence but let me tell you sometimes the harm that is done from church fights can be more detrimental to the church than a knife fight during a business meeting uh, conflict makes the gospel repulsive to those that are on the outside it doesn't just you know discourage those that are within the church but those that are on the outside looking in uh, you know, it, it is just a horrible testimony, and it makes the gospel repulsive to them. Uh, thinking about different churches and some that I could even name, and about uh, for, for some of them, about the closest thing they ever get to really doing serious mission work is having a church split. And every few years, every five or ten years, they'll have another church split. 
uh, and some of them had, you know, four or five splits, and they've got a reputation for that. Well, you know, whenever we come to the New Testament, which is the the book of Acts especially being the pattern for the New Testament church, we find five times in the first five chapters of the book of Acts where we, we read this phrase, with one accord, with one accord. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be wonderful if that could be said about every church, you know? God didn't design us as rugged individualists. You know, we like to, you know, we talk about the heritage of our nation and we talk about the rugged individualism and what have you that contributed to our nation. But, you know, the fact of the matter is God made us as social creatures needing one another. And that means if we're social creatures by divine design, we have to learn how to relate to each other. And that's not always easy. That can be really difficult. You might have heard me quote the little poem that somebody wrote some years ago, to dwell above with the saints that we love, that will be glory. But to live here below with the saints that we know, well, that's another story. And it really is sometimes, you know, because it's difficult for us a lot of times to learn how to relate to each other because there's always going to be disagreements regardless in in, in a marriage, in a business, in a church, or anything else. Uh, uh, how many of you read Morning Manna this morning? <laughs> I hope somebody raises their hand. Well, a few of you did, but it's it's about dealing with our differences and pursuing peace, and we all have those differences, you know, whether it's in sports, whether it's, uh, you know, in the hobbies that we enjoy or whatever it is. So there's always going to be differences, but uh, we need to we need to learn to disagree without being disagreeable, and uh, that's more difficult than you might think. One of the, I think one of the most um, important series for the church that I've ever done, I've done it probably three or four times over the 50 years, and that is the one another series uh, using all of the one another phrases that Paul uses uh, in his writings. You know, we're to love one another, forgive one another, pray for one another, and on and on and on the list goes. And it's so important that we learn how to uh, to do that because God expects us to be more than just being a part of the same congregation. Amen. Unity and union are not the same. You can tie two cats by their tails and pitch them over a clothesline. Uh, that's why I don't tell everything I did as a boy, but I'm speaking out of experience, and you can do that, and believe me, you're going to have union, but you're not going to have unity. They're going to be tied together. They're going to be unified, uh, but uh, it's not going to be a pretty picture. Well, you, you know, when it comes to the Lord's church, a lot of times, a lot of times we've got union, but we don't have any unity in the church. And uh, that can be terribly harmful to our cause because if we're going to fulfill our mission as a church, it takes all of us working together. And let me tell you, that depends on our relationship with God. 
more than anything else. You think about the fruit of the Spirit there in Galatians chapter number 5. That's what God produces. What we do, our part in this, is to surrender ourselves to the Lord, have a good relationship with God, and the better our relationship with God, the better our relationship will be with others. So you've probably already figured out that we're going to be talking about unity tonight, Christian unity. And here in Psalms 133, I don't know of a better place to turn than here. Verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. As a pastor, this psalm has a really special place in my heart because I have felt the pain, I've experienced the misery, I've seen the consequences of disunity in the church. But I've also enjoyed the blessings uh, of seeing a church unified and people loving one another. And let me tell you, there's great strength in unification. And I'm so glad that, you know, maybe somebody no doubt always wonders, well, are we having a problem in the church? Is that what this is about? No. This, I said this morning, prevention is better than cure. And the best time to talk about these issues is when you don't have a problem with them. Because a lot of times after the problem develops, it's too late to really do much about it. But just like the old saying is, you know, united we stand and divided we fall. That's true in, in, in a marriage. It's true in a business. It's true on a, on a ball team. Uh, in, in, in any endeavor that you do, if everybody is not on the same page working for the same thing, you're going to have problems. Well, in this psalm, the writer speaks about the beauty and the blessing of unity. And I want you to notice he starts out with a declaration I'll get to here in just a minute. But he gives a declaration, but then he gives a threefold description. Uh, the First from, from the sacred realm and then from the secular realm. So let's look at the declaration. Verse number one, and notice the first word, behold. That means stop what you're doing. It means to set your sights on something, shut everything else. Behold, fix your sights on something. He's telling us that unity is a sight worth seeing. It's worthy of our admiration. It's something that we ought to pause, that we ought to look upon. You know, some people travel the world to see the sights. You know, I, I, I don't know. That's never appealed to me that much. I'm sorry. I'm, you know, I wish I was different. I've often thought about, you know, well, uh, maybe I ought to be more concerned, you know, about that and what have you. But, uh, you know, I enjoy the outdoors. I can sit outside for hours watching the squirrels play and just enjoy the outdoors. I love to take a walk in the woods and things like that. But, but to travel the world to see the sights. And uh, I'm not criticizing anybody else for doing that. 
But I'll tell you, a sight that is far better than the even the wonders of the world is the sight of unity among God's people. Now, that is a sight worth seeing. That's why he starts out with saying, Behold, pay attention. And then he says how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Notice the combination of the word good and the word pleasant. That deserves our attention. Several years ago, I read a statement that Charles Spurgeon had made about that. The only time I'd ever seen any preacher ever ever emphasize the difference in these two things. And he said, for a thing to be good is good. Out, uh, uh, But for it to be better, uh, let me back up. For a thing to be good is good, but for it also to be pleasant is better. All men love pleasant things, and yet it frequently happens that the the pleasure is evil, but here the condition is as good as it is pleasant, as pleasant as it is good. For the same how is set before each qualifying word. Well, you know, Spurgeon had a way of saying things, but I'll tell you, that was an observation that I've never seen any other writer. And believe me, I've I've read every commentary that you can imagine on the Psalms and about every book of the Bible. And and uh, and and it's important that we, you know, that that we sit at the feet of those that were, you know, knowledgeable of the Word of God. But he made that observation. You know, something can be pleasant, but it's not necessarily good. But this is something that's good, and it's pleasant. And, and as I said at the very beginning, as a pastor, being able to see unity in the church, I'm going to tell you what, you it's easy to sleep at night. Whenever you know there's unity in the church or unity in your home, uh, it, just, it just gives you a special kind of peace. But there's nothing that tears you apart like having problems in the home. You know, the whole rest of the world can be going wrong, but man, if you can just find that special place, you know, in the home, all of a sudden it is a refuge from the troubles of the world. And when we come together as the Lord's church about the most miserable thing that can happen is for us to try to worship the Lord when we know that there's disunity and there's tension and there's arguments going on and stuff like that. It's horrible. So that's the declaration. He wants you to know that this is something we ought to stop, that we ought to look at, because it's good and it's pleasant. But now, notice the description that he gives. I said that he looks at this from two different viewpoints, the, the sacred and the secular. First of all, verse 2, he, he gives us a picture from the, uh, the sacred realm. He says, it's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. Now, of course, that was speaking about, you know, the oil of anointing that was poured upon him. And uh, here he's saying that that resembles the unity of God's people. And, and it does so in several ways. First of all, it's the fragrance of it. You know, if something doesn't smell good, then it is repulsive. The old timers always said, you know, that 
that uh, that WD-40 was really good for your arthritis. You know, I've, I've just... I, I, I just never really thought about giving that a try because I think it might be a bit repulsive to your wife or to other people, you know. What's that smell? Oh, I got WD-40 rubbed all over me, you know. And so it's a whole lot better to use something that's got a fragrance, a pleasant fragrance to it, you see. Now, he's telling us that unity has that fragrance about it. It's something that is pleasurable rather than something that is repulsive. And so unity pleases, unity attracts. You know, even you take a guest comes in, and if they see any kind of disunity in the church, I want to tell you what, they're not coming back. They get, they get into enough of that out there in the world. And it is so pleasant for them to be able to come into church and, and to see that everybody's on the same page working together. They're worshiping together. They love one another. And that has a drawing power, you see. So it's like that, that, that precious ointment upon Aaron's beard in that it's fragrant. But not only is it fragrant, more importantly is the fact that it is a holy thing because that ointment was required to anoint the high priest. You know, how important is that? I mean, he is being anointed to this office. That's the spiritual significance of it. And, and in the same vein... Unity is demanded by the Lord. So if we're going to, look, if we're going to convince that God is in our midst, then we're going to have to be unified. Over in John chapter 17, I want you to turn there or at least mark this down in the margin of your Bible because this is the real Lord's Prayer. You know, we talk about the Lord's Prayer a lot of time in reference to, you know, the pattern that he gave on the Sermon on the Mount. But here is the real Lord's Prayer. And keep in mind, this is in that meeting in the upper room. And it is about to come to an end. He's about to be crucified and buried. And notice beginning in verse number 20, he says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Boy, that that is so interesting. That that verse there, I, I I don't want to get off track, but you ought to think about that verse later on. Now, verse number twenty-one. But he says that they may that they may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Now, get this that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Wow. Boy, I mean, if nothing else ever made you to see the importance of unity, that ought to do it. He is saying that this is one of the evidences that we give to the world that we are the people of God, that He is our Savior. Uh, Whenever the world sees us unified 
together that the world may believe and whenever he makes that statement and not only for these that are here with me but those that will come later that's talking about the future converts that would include us those that have been saved afterwards that is god's desire unity is a holy thing it is a fragrant thing but unity also according to this description here of the precious ointment, it's something that diffuses. In other words, it's poured on the head, but it runs down the beard, and then it flows on down to the garments. And that's the way Christian love is. It condescends to those that are of low estate. Love's never proud. Love is never haughty. Love never causes us to think that we're better than somebody else. You know, it puts us all on the same level. And that's all being pictured here. Unity is a demonstration of our, of our humble love for one another. And so that is the, that's the sacred description. But notice there is a secular description also. Verse three, as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. He's talking about the dew that flows down from the higher elevation to the lower areas. And as that dew does, even so does unity flow to others. Now we got to keep in mind, in the hot Mediterranean, dew is vital to life. I mean, they absolutely depend upon it. It's not like Texas where you get, you know, so many inches of rain a year. Uh, but they depend upon the dew. It is essential. And in the same way, unity is an absolute essential thing in the life of a church. Nothing is more offensive, nothing is more harmful and detrimental than a feuding church. And he says that this unity is like the dew that comes down. Did you know that the dew is something that, which is a symbol of the, of the, of the spirit and the unity in the church, that it is, it's distilled in the night. It's never distilled in a storm. Let that sink in. In a storm when the wind is blowing and the waves are raging and, you know, and, and raining out or whatever, the dew is never formed then. It's whenever everything is still, everything is quiet. And in the same way, if we're going to have unity in the church, it's going to happen whenever there's no strife, no rush, no no hustle, bustle, and all, all of that going on. It's not going to be in the middle of a storm. Uh, and do something that's not manufactured, you know. It's something that God produces. And the same thing is true of unity. It's something that God produces uh, as a result of us maintaining our relationship with Him. Notice how he concludes this psalm. It's so very important. He says, for there, he's talking about, you know, the mountains now in Zion and, and Mount Hermon. He's talking about the dew flowing down. Notice, though, for there, he says, the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. If we're going to expect the life-giving blessings of God, we have to be unified. There's no way around it. 
So many times we expect God to do great things in the church whenever we know deep down that our heart's not right with God. There's fussing and feuding. There's bitterness and rancor going on. And, and and then we turn around and pray, Lord, bless the church. Well, he can't. He won't bless the church when it's in a state like that, you see. And so here he's talking about the life-giving effect of, of, of the do. And, and in the same way, the life-giving effect of unity in the church. Now, I've said all of that, and I want to leave you with three thoughts in this regards, three things that we need to remember. The first thing is that unity must be developed. It's not something that's just going to kapoof happen, you know, whenever somebody joins the church. If we're going to be unified, it's going to take effort on our part. Now, regardless of how much effort we put forth, it'll never be enough effort if our heart's not right with God. But if our heart is right with God, if we're doing what God would have us to do, if we're loving one another like we should, then God is going to produce unity in the church. But it's not something we can manufacture ourselves. But it's something that's got to be developed. Several years ago, Bev and I had gone to a a new church, and uh, I hadn't been there no time until all of a sudden... uh, 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 some somebody, you know, you'd like to say they took a liking to you. Well, they didn't. This woman literally said, she said that I wish this pastor would leave. She said the last pastor I prayed for uh, to leave died, and she said, I'm hoping that this one will leave. I hadn't been there no time at all. You know, it's really terrible when you start out like that. Uh, and I hadn't done anything to her except preach the the word, you know, as I understood it. But she got offended about something, and it so happened that about, oh, probably 30, 40% of the family was in some way related to this woman. The good thing about it is that after church that day, because I didn't hear what she said, but some of them did, and after church that day, one of the one of her distant relatives in the church cornered her in the parking lot, and I mean she read her the riot act and 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 just told her how how it was. Well, you know that at least I had somebody standing up for me, and so that went on for a little while, and it was really obvious this woman didn't want anything to do with me. It so happened that she was a, uh, I'll not be too specific here because uh, I got people that, you know, believe it or not, that actually listen to the service, uh, and uh, I don't want to embarrass a family, but she happened to be a musician. Now, I didn't say whether she played the trumpet or the piano or the piano or the piano or the organ or what, but she was a musician in the church, and uh, so I thought, well, what am I going to do? We had a had a guy in the church said, Russ, on the, you want to go deer hunting? I said, well, somebody stole my deer rifle. I only have a deer rifle. He went down and bought me a deer rifle and said, okay, we're going deer hunting. And went deer hunting, killed a deer, came back, and I just decided, uh, Bev doesn't like deer meat all that much anyway, and I decided, you know, I'm going to take them some deer meat. 
you know, it was amazing the change that it made in that person's attitude. By the time we left there, let me tell you, that, that, that woman would have fought for us, by the way. Something changed. And, 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 and I'm pointing all of that out not to say that I've always done the right thing because I haven't. There have been times that, you know, that I've failed miserably. But I'm saying that, that if we're going to have unity, it has to be developed, something we've got to work at. It doesn't just happen. It really it doesn't just happen in your marriages. It's not something that, you know, oh, well, you know, I, I, wish, I wish, you know, me and my wife had better unity with one another. We just can't seem to get along. Uh, well, every marriage couple has gone through something like that. And some of them longer periods of time than other. It, it, it takes working at it. I, and any relationship you've got, if you've got a really good friend, I'll guarantee you there have been times that you've had some disagreements. It might not, you know, reach the point that you come to blows. It might not be that you called each other names. But having a friend is something you've got to work at. I hope you don't have the attitude the first time somebody offends you, well, I don't want to be their friend anymore. That's a horrible attitude to have. I mean, if somebody's your friend, we ought to be willing to work through our differences and so forth. And it's the same way in our church relationship with each other. The first time something goes wrong for somebody to say, boy, I'm out of here. You know, I've had all of this that I can stand. I'm going, I'm going to go find another church. You know what they're going to find? They're going to find exactly what they left, only it's probably going to be worse. And we're, look, we're going to have disagreements. We're, we're going to have some problems, no doubt about that. But, but we can work through those problems. We have to develop unity. Secondly, we have to maintain unity. You don't know how wonderful it is for me to be able to, well, I wish I was standing here, but, but even be able to sit here, it is wonderful to sit here before this congregation and, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, to, to know that there's great unity in the church. Uh, but I'm not, I, I'm not silly enough to suppose that we don't need to maintain that because there's constantly something trying to tear us apart. Always. Something trying to drive wedges in between us. And sometimes it can be the most frivolous, nonsensical thing that you can imagine, but you, you'd be amazed at what some people can get upset over. Some of you will remember over at, the, over at the villa, somebody got really, really mad at me because I told a dumb blonde joke. Well, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't realize anybody was that sensitive. Uh, uh, <laughs> Better look around. I quit telling dumb John blow uh, jokes though. I, I I didn't I didn't tell anymore. So they got their way. But but we have to maintain unity because it's always being threatened. So to do that, we've got to focus on the importance of unity. We've got we got to focus on how important is it. Well, it's important. It's so important that we've got to work at it. Not only that, but there needs to be fellowship among us. If we're going to have unity, we've got to spend a certain amount of time together. There's got to be fellowship. There's got to be contact with each other. 
And then, of course, if, if we're going to maintain unity, we've certainly got to be willing to forgive each other. Amen. I mean, how in the world can we, uh, can we harbor bitterness in our heart toward other people and not be willing to forgive them? Because we all offend in some way, and we all need forgiveness. And therefore, because we need it, we ought to be willing to extend it. So we have to develop unity. We have to maintain unity after we have it. But then we have to guard unity. Because, as I said, there's a lot of different things that's going to be a threat to us. It might be people. Sometimes people go read the last chapter of the book of Romans, for example, and you and other writings of Paul, where there were those that threatened the unity of the church, and Paul calls them out as a result of that. This is something that has to be guarded against. And we look, we can't tolerate that. We can tolerate in the church a new Christian, for example, not dotting all of the I's and crossing all of the T's from the standpoint of theology. They haven't got it all right yet. They don't understand maybe the doctrines of the church. They might even come in with a different version of the Bible. By the way, a lot of people never even heard. Whenever I get up here and say that the King James Version of the Bible is the only Bible the Christian ought to ever use, I'm telling you that some people, when they come in, they think I'm some kind of a nut for saying that. They've never heard that before. They have no idea why I would make a statement like that. And so, look, there are a lot of people on a lot of different issues that don't understand. Look, we we ought to be able to get along with people like that, especially a new Christian that they don't understand everything. And so... Uh, we can tolerate that, but we cannot tolerate people that come in and that would try to divide the church. We, we, we can't tolerate that. This church is more important than I am. This church is more important than you are. And we cannot allow anybody to be a threat to the unity and the ministry of the church. So there are people that we have to guard against, but then there are circumstances that we have to guard against. Now, when I say that, please understand that I'm not saying that we can decide what the circumstances are because we can't. Every one of us tonight, we could take a pencil and a piece of paper and we could make a list of the circumstances in our life that we wish were different, right? Things that, you know, the circumstances is not just right. You can't change it. You have to live with it. But I'm telling you, a lot of times the circumstances can be such that it is a threat to our unity and we have to guard against them, not so much trying to, to change the circumstances as understanding the danger of them and maintaining the right attitude in regards to the circumstances or the people. We have to guard against having the critical spirit. A, a, a critical spirit can just develop over a bad experience for example you 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 can be going through some bad circumstances i've i've known some preachers for example that were the most kind loving gracious gentle people that i knew and they went through a really bad experience in the church and from that point on they turned into some kind of a monster I mean, they absolutely had a critical spirit. They didn't trust anybody. 
They absolutely, they, they just kind of held everybody at arm's length. They built a wall around them to protect themselves and had a critical spirit of everybody else. That same thing can happen to any of us. It might not be a critical spirit. It might be the, the attitude of jealousy and how it can create divisions. It might be stubbornness. It might be pride since only by pride comes contention. It might be an attitude of, of resentment, an attitude of selfishness. And all of that requires, first of all, self-examination for us to stop and to look at ourselves. And, you know, I think maybe part of the problem is that a lot of times we don't examine ourselves because we are so focused on somebody else's faults. We're, we're, we're thinking about what well, so-and-so needs. They need to take a good look at themselves. And there might be some of you sitting there say, well, preacher, you need to take a good look at yourself. You're exactly right. I sure do. But that does, if I don't, that doesn't excuse you for one second. We need to examine our own selves. We need to be honest about it. We need to have a spirit of humility in regards to it and repent when it's not right. Let's go back. You don't need to turn there, but let's just go back to what was on our Lord's mind when he was about to leave his disciples. Now think of all of the different things that he could have talked to them about. Think about all of the different doctrines, for example. You know, he could have said, now, fellas, I've been with you now all of this time, and we've gone over a great many subjects. And I'm, I'm just afraid that you haven't really, that you really haven't got this prophecy thing yet. And I want to take the next hour or two before we leave this upper room, and, and I want to go over the, the order of prophetic events again. I want to talk to you more about my coming back and the timeline and all of that. He, he didn't do that. He could have talked about the doctrine of the church. He could have talked about numerous things. But think about this. In his final conversation with them, his prayer for them, and it all centered on unity, the need for us to deal with our differences. And that always has to happen on a personal level. You know, just getting up and addressing the issue before the, before the congregation, you know, that's, that's one thing, but that never solves it. I, you know, I, if, and I, I'm glad it's not like this, but if there was a great big huge division in the church, a serious problem, I could get up here and I could explain you know, brother so-and-so is angry about this, and he's especially angry at this group over here, and they've divided up into groups, and they've be both, both sides have become a threat to the welfare of the church, and something has to be done about that. Let me tell you, you don't solve that matter in a, in a corporate sense, this side settling with that side. It, when you get down to the nitty-gritty where the rubber meets the road, the bare bones, it gets right back to dealing with it on a personal level, one-on-one. -on -one. That's the way it has to be. And we ought, I hope tonight that in light of the things that we've talked about, 
that God, the Holy Spirit, will impress upon our hearts how important unity is. And it's, it's going to be threatened. And that's why we've got to do whatever is possible, whatever is in our power. We've got to do to develop it, to maintain it, to guard and protect unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's easy for any of us to find faults with each other, but it's another thing for us to be gracious, loving, kind, and forgiving one to another. You know, there in the article that I mentioned in Morning Manna, there in Romans where Paul says, if it be possible, if it be possible, it's not possible to live at peace with some people because they don't want it. But that should never cause us to give up our effort into pursuing peace with them. We shouldn't say, well, you know, I tried one once. I, I tried you know, and uh, I sat down with them and I talked about how we need to we need to forgive each other and we need to move on past this. And they just wouldn't have any of it. I'm done with them. I I'm through with it. Why? Why are you going to give up just because they won't give in? Boy, I'm glad God didn't give up on me the first time I walked away from Him. Thank God for that. I'm so glad that He's patient and loving and and uh, willing to forgive. And I, I pray God will help me to be that way with each and every person in this church and uh, that it help us be the kind of church that takes every measure to maintain unity in the church because the responsibility is on our shoulders. The Lord put it there. We're responsible for maintaining Unity. He's going to hold us accountable for how we do it. Now, how do you give an invitation at a time like this? Well, I don't know. Uh, you give people an opportunity. And it might be that there's someone here that maybe maybe somebody you would have never guessed, but they, for whatever reason, there's some bitterness in their heart towards somebody else. It's easy for that to happen, by the way, for us to get bitter towards someone it might be a spirit of jealousy. It can be 40, 11 different things that are causing us problems. And uh, if, if we don't do anything else about it, we, ought, we certainly need to pray about it. And so it might be that you don't want to say a word to Brother Kenneth or I. It might be you just want to get on your knees somewhere. You don't have to walk down the aisle, but right where you are and just do business with God and say, Lord, you know I've been harboring this bitterness in my heart. I've been angry at so-and-so for a long time. And uh, don't try to justify your anger by pointing out their faults. Deal with the anger that you can deal with because you can't change them. Only God can do that. And the only one we're responsible for is our attitude toward them. And so may, may God help us tonight say, look, Regardless of what anybody else does, I'm going to do everything in my power to see that we maintain unity in Lakeway Baptist Church. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you tonight for peacemakers. Lord, how we thank you tonight for those that, that are always willing to put the best interest of the church even above their preferences. 
even in times when they have what seems to be a better idea, in times whenever it seems like that they're the one that has been done wrong, and yet for the sake of having peace in the church, they're willing to submit, as it were, to the others. And Lord, we thank you for those people that are working for peace, those people that are willing to extend forgiveness, those people that are loving and kind toward others. And I pray, Lord, that you'll, that you'll build a hedge of protection around this church, that we might be able to maintain the unity that we enjoy, that we might be an example of the believer that others might see Christ in control of our lives and be convinced that we are indeed your people, that even those that are lost might be saved. For we ask it all in Jesus' name.